I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, Gavin Hattersley, President and CEO of Molson Coors Beverage Company, is joined by Kate Sullivan, host of To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on May 25th, 2022. They discuss beverage innovation, the explosion of hard seltzers, and how his values and leadership style have played out in his successful career leading a multinational beverage company. I'd love to begin this conversation the way I begin all of my TV programs, which is to ask the guest, where is their favorite restaurant in the world? It does not have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be um, anything, but where you really love. So if I were, where would you take me if you could take me anywhere? That's a great question. I would, um, let's go with the Calderon Club in Milwaukee. Ah, okay. <laughs> tell, what is, tell me about it's the It's an culture. Italian restaurant. I love pasta. My children love I pasta. Uh, my wife's not that excited about it, but it's my <laughs> favorite place. It's actually the first restaurant I had a meal in in America. And, really? Um, it, was a, it was an experience. And so, yeah, I love it. It's, it's very... It's very homely. The, the, the owner's always there. It's, it's, it's a really great restaurant. I always believe that it's not necessarily about the food. Sometimes it's about the way a restaurant makes you feel. And it might be a nod to your culture, where you came from, where you are from, or really just comfort. And I think um, after the pandemic, in so many ways, from a business perspective, people are shifting back to what feels comfortable, don't you think? I do think so. Speaking it of, is, yep. cheers. <laughs> what makes us all feel comfortable? A Miller Lite. Cheers Indeed. to you, Gavin. Cheers to you too. All right. Um, as I said, I, I promised to drink this after the interview, but if I drink it now, it'll be a whole different interview that I'm not sure you want. Um, if I start drinking this, it means you... you're asking me tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll wait for that. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and were there any unwritten rules uh, from your family that have kind of stuck with you today? I, grew, I was born in Zambia, um, didn't spend a lot of time in Zambia, um, and then moved down to Namibia, lived in Vintuk for a while, and then landed up in South Africa, mm -hmm. uh, in Johannesburg, and then Durban, um, and then Port Elizabeth, and then Bloemfontein, and then Middleburg. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a product of a, of a family that moved around a lot, and I kind of followed, followed that. I had a very uh, traditional father. He was born in uh, Winchester in, um, in the United Kingdom, and uh, there were very set rules. Mm. Um, I, I don't think he would have adapted well to um, the current world where you know, people are living on their cell phones. You, know? you had to be at the dinner table at a certain time, and you ate your dinner at a certain time, and you engaged in conversation. And so... Um, that's probably one of the unwritten rules that have carried somewhat into our, our, our current lives. Discipline, right? Discipline, Remember yes. that word? <laughs> right? As the, as the mother of three boys, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. I'm but, father of two. Oh, father of two boys. I am, yes. Yeah, the instilling discipline, obviously that was something that carries, carried through from your childhood. Is, do you feel like you've done an adequate job of disciplining your boys or teaching them discipline? I think I did an okay job. Okay. I think my wife was probably better at it than I was. She was the disciplinarian because I traveled a lot. So, you know, she was the one that had to run the household with a tight fist, and she did. Um, but I think our boys were doing well. They're very, they, they are 
both living their dreams and um, having fun. That's all you can ask for, exactly. right? Living their dreams and having fun. Um, when you were in college, who did you want to be when you were specifically in college and thinking about what your future might look like? It, it's so different. Isn't it fun to think back? Because it's very often not what we're doing now. Um, and I'm wondering, did you know you were going to go into business at, the, you know, at college age? Yeah, my eldest son likes to say that I didn't go to college um, because I studied, I, I worked during the day and I did college at night time. So he, when he filled in his college application, he wanted to write their first generation. I said, you can't do that. I've actually got a college degree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's, it's a boring answer. I, I knew from middle school that I wanted to be an accountant. Really? My dad was an accountant. Um, I wanted to be a, an accountant. And I never really wavered from that. I think in... in First year of college, I, I toyed with law and dismissed that very quickly and went back to, to accounting. So I'm actually not what I wanted to be. I always just had an ambition to be the chief financial officer of a publicly listed company, and that's what I wanted to be. Mm. Um, because chief financial officers don't normally do this kind right, of thing, I know. which is what I wanted to We're do. We're getting you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> very <Yes>. much so. <laughs> um, just by a show of hands, how many people in the room right now are doing exactly what you thought you would do senior year in college? Just out of curiosity. Are you an accountant too? No. <laughs> but that was how many hands? Not many. Wow, not many. Okay, you guys are in good company here, right? Um, so you, 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 you knew you wanted to be an accountant. What was your first job right out of school? And what did that first few years in the business world teach you? So I did the, I followed the traditional route. I worked for an auditing firm. Um, it was not a top five, top four, it probably wasn't even a top ten. Um, it's called Fisher Hoffman Stroud. I, I think it was an American company which has disappeared now. So I did that for five years and then I joined. There were two companies you really wanted to work for in South Africa if you were an accountant. One was called Barlow's and the other was called South African Breweries. Couldn't get into South African Breweries in the beginning so I started out at Barlow's and my first job was an accountant in a used car dealership. Really? And I learned a lot about life. Um, as an accountant in a used car dealership. I bet you did. That. I did, yes. Well, tell us a little bit about it. Are you interested? What did he learn as an <laughs> accountant in a used car dealership? What was it like? Well, we had a, I learned where people make money, I'll tell you that, and it's not in selling cars, it's actually all in the parts and, 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 and service. But I, I learned about, a lot about human relations, actually, um, because you're, you're, you're dealing with all sorts of, 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 of folk. And, um, I must say, it was a good grounding. I had a really good boss. I've been very lucky in my career. I've had really good bosses along the way. And um, what was it about that boss that you would classify as good? What made him good? He stretched me. You know, I, I had this accounting mindset, and I just wanted to do the numbers. And he put me in charge of different parts of the dealership every now and then. So I think my, my sort of second first job was, was as the, 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 the guy that ran the, the forecourt where, where gas was pumped. Um, and I, I was, that was pretty out there for me. I was a bookkeeper. Well, you are currently the CEO of Molson Coors, 25 years with the business, which is yes. really incredible. How would you describe your leadership style? I'm very much open, um, open book. Um, I do, um, I, the, the folk that work with me would tell you that I'm, 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 a too, I'm very detailed, I'm very, very controlling. I don't <laughs> agree with it. Um, I think... <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm only detailed when, um, when I'm worried about a particular area. So I, I, I like to say if I'm delving into your area, that means I'm worried about it. Mm -hmm. So if, 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 if I'm all over Adam, for example, then I'm worried about communications and, and public relations and, and, and so on. But I, I like to surround myself with great people and then let them go. Mm. Um, that's, uh, yeah. Well, to, when I think of being controlling, which can be a positive and a negative, I think about the past two years and how we have all had to let go of control to some degree and also try to control what we can control. Talk to me specifically about how you have successfully navigated the pandemic and how perhaps your leadership style had to change a bit in these past couple of years. Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I, um, we had just launched the revitalization plan. I hadn't been CEO very long. I think I'd been CEO for five months. And then we had the, 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 the tragedy at the Milwaukee Brewery, and then a coronavirus, and then we had the, the George Floyd murder, and then we had a cyber security attack. Um, and so it's been, a, it's been a pretty challenging two years. Mm -hmm. But we had launched our values probably two months before the coronavirus hit. Mm -hmm. And the number one value was put people first. So we agreed early on that every decision we made was going to be with, with that value front and, 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 and center. So whether it was you know, closing the offices on, on, I think it was March the 13th was the last day we were, we were in the office, to how do we keep our breweries um, safe? How do, we keep the folk, how, how do we keep the folk safe and the breweries open? Because there was no work from home option for them. Um, and we were just in a world where we, we really didn't know a lot. Um, and so putting people first, our number one value was, was, was what guided us through that. We, we looked at everything through that lens. How, how have I changed? Well, I, I think the most visible and obvious change is I, I am, I'm, a, I'm traditional, right? I just am. Um, and old I'm a, school. I'm old school, yes. uh, you know, butts in seats in the office five days a week. Um, that was my mindset. Mm -hmm. And that became very obvious that we weren't going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we talked a lot about that. Um, and we opened our offices for volunteers for a while. Um, I think there was maybe six of us in the office for, for a long time. But then we concluded we, we wanted to come back. Um, I think it's really important to have people together from a culture point of view. But we were never going to come back five days a week. And so we, we settled on three, which if you'd asked me two years ago that I would have allowed that level of flexibility, <laughs> I would have told you there's just no way. And it's working well, I think. Okay. Um, of course, there are folk that, that, that want to work from home five days a week, and there are people that want to be in the office five days a week. So this kind of happy balance, which I think is working reasonably well. So August 2021, your employees come back to the office three out of five days. Is that correct? Um, was it August 2021 we came through? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, three days a week. And then we closed again when Omicron came. So we, we shut it down for December and January. And then we brought everybody back again in February, three days a week. And how has the retention been? It's actually been much better than what I'm reading in the, in the, in, in the press and, the, and seeing in the media. When you look at our um, loss rates, we're, we're actually less now than we were in pre-pandemic. Mm. So, you know, through, through April, we've lost less folk uh, than we did pre-pandemic. Um, so we're actually doing all right. So with the three days a week, do you anticipate that to go on for the foreseeable future? Or do you think there will be a day when you are back in the office five days a week? I don't think we'll ever be back in the office five days a week. Really? I, you think we're just changed permanently? I think, I think we've changed. Um, I, think, I think we've changed permanently. Right. Yes. I think folk, 
enjoy the flexibility. Um, I actually think folk work harder at home than they do at work, because you take out the, the commuting time. You, you know, my commute at home is about from here to, to David. <laughs> um, and at work, you, I just think folk just work a lot harder, which is not necessarily a good right, thing. Right, there's no so balance, not, right? There's, it blends together, it, work and, yeah, and home, right? Work and home becomes, becomes one. So no, I, I, I don't see us going back to that. We might do things differently. At the moment, we're all in Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Um, and um, I felt quite strongly that if we, were, if we were going to have flexibility, then we needed to have, when folk were back, they, they, they were back so we can, the purpose of it is to build culture and to build engagement and, and, and spontaneity. And um, being together on the same days um, seemed to me to be a good idea. Now, there are folk that don't necessarily agree with that. They want full flexibility. I'll come in the three days I want to come in, mm -hmm. but we haven't, we haven't gone to that. Mm. We might go to Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Or, all right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your core business and your beverage offerings, right? Um, we, we have a, a Miller Lite in front of us, which is the iconic Coors Light, Miller Lite. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed as far as consumer behavior around these iconic brands? Has it waned over the years, or is it still as strong as ever? You know, the, 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 the outside world is called the death of, of premium lights ever since I came to America 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. they've, they've, they've said that premium lights are you know, they, they will die soon, and they are alive and very well, I'll tell you that. Um, Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, still are the biggest brands in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the country. And um, we've done, I think our marketing, our chief marketing officer, um, Michelle Saint-Jacques, she's done an amazing job differentiating these two brands and creating pathways for each of them. Miller Light is going, you know, the taste, Coors Light, Chill, I actually love the sponsor here, right? Chill everywhere, that's actually um, something we use for, for Coors Light. Um, and uh, they, they are doing very well. Uh, we went, in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw folk migrate back to things they knew and trusted. Mm. And the big brands Comfort. like this uh, were, were flying off the shelves in the, in the off-premise because people knew them, they loved them, um, they were what they remembered and they migrated to them and I think uh, they've stuck with them. They've stuck with them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. I'd love to know how many of you consider yourself a beer drinker in the room by a show of hands. And keep your hands raised if you would fall into the category of a more traditional type of beer, meaning uh, not an IPA, but really like some of your old school brands, but lay hands stay up. Now, if you could put your hands down, who falls into a lover of that hard seltzer that is really across, oh, we got to, <laughs> and it's really, and it usually <laughs> not, has to not do. Not many. It, no, but it usually has to do with age, right? A, young, a younger consumer, it tends to like the hard seltzer. Talk to me about this explosion of hard seltzer, how you have adapted, and how you forecast what's ahead. You know, this is actually quite unusual because, all, you know, all age groups are drinking seltzers. I think there is a little bit of a misnomer that it's 18 to 34s only. Mm -hmm. Look, they are the bigger part of it, but, but you, you'll be surprised and you watch a baseball game, who is actually drinking a seltzer? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's everybody, or 
a lot of people. Um, the seltzer market, to be completely candid, we got it completely wrong in the beginning. Really? We, How? We launched a, a seltzer at the same time as Truly and White Claw launched. Mm. We launched it in a bottle. Um, we launched it with a, a name that didn't really resonate with um, consumers. What um, was uh, the name? Henry's. Henry's? Yes. Okay. Um, it's a fine name, right? <laughs> and, yeah, the, the, the taste wasn't great. We, the pack wasn't right. So we did everything wrong. So we fell behind White Claw and, and Truly quite quickly. And we've spent the last three years playing catch-up. And um, I think the team is doing an amazing job with that. We've now got Vizzy and we've got Topo Chico Hard Salsa. Topo Chico, we, we entered into a deal with Coca-Cola. And Vizzy <coughs> was the brand we created. Mm -hmm. um, very differentiated from, the, from its comp competition. Uh, we doubled our market share last year. Wow. And uh, the market share is increasing every single week. Uh, we were, I don't know, we were probably the number seven seltzer in the country, and we're now the number four. And um, I'm, I will predict that we will pass the number three, which is Bud, Bud Light, or Bud Light Seltzer, um, in the near future. What do you think that says about the beer drinking consumer and kind of what's ahead when you're, when you're future casting forward? Well, it, it, seltzers are, are, are more sessionable. Um, they're not associating as, as the IPAs are. So when you look at where the consumer is coming from, it's coming from the IPAs, it's coming from the fuller flavored, higher sugar uh, products. Uh, folk are, are it's, it's more refreshing. Um, and so if you don't want to necessarily drink a beer, folk are drinking the, um, the seltzers. The, the younger legal drinking age consumer has, has been fairly um, it's promiscuous the right word. They jump around between categories. They settled in on seltzers as, as, as something which was light, it was refreshing, um, and um, they've, they've generally stuck to it. It's a big category at the moment. I know a lot of folk are concerned that it's, that it's slowed down, but nothing can grow 100% forever, um, and seltzers is no, no exception. If you don't mind, I'd love to back up for just a second because I really appreciate your transparency. You're talking a little bit about Henry's and how yeah. it was a flop, if I could say that. Disaster would a be disaster. <laughs> a disaster. A um, disaster. <laughs> What do you do in that moment when, you, when the numbers are coming in, you see you've put all this energy and effort into this new product of Henry's. It is, as you say, a disaster. Um, how do you pivot from that moment? What do you say to your team to galvanize them in a different direction and to help them be more creative and innovate and rise above? I think we've got a lot better at this over time. In the beginning, um, we would try and push something uphill that perhaps wasn't wasn't willing You'd to go You'd stick with uphill. Henry's. We You're would, like, let's market it different. We, Henry's, Henry's is probably is a bad win. example. We probably stuck with Henry's a little too long. Okay. Um, now, we've got, we've got a, a distribution network. It's a three-tier system. Our distributors are very vocal, and they let us know pretty quickly whether something's not working. And um, I, we probably stuck with that one a, a little too, too long. Right now, we've become, I think, much better at making very quick decisions. Um, Coors Seltzer would be an example. We originally launched Coors Seltzer and Vizzy at the same, at the same time. And, and when we landed Topo Chico, it was clear that we, we probably needed to hone in on two. Um, yes. And so we made a very quick decision on, on Coors Seltzer. Um, we have after-action reviews where we, it's not about blame or pointing fingers. It's about, so this is what happened what can we learn from it? And what do we do to make sure that that doesn't happen when we launch Topo Chico or Vizzy or, or um, our new most exciting brand, which is Simply? When you think about uh, creating a corporate culture that you want to be a part of, that you want employees to be excited about, um, how, how, what are some of the steps that you do to ensure 
a great corporate culture? And really, what are you doing per personally to shape the corporate culture of Molson Coors? Well, you've got to live it, right? Um, because people see through um, falseness, fakeness um, very quickly. Um, and so if we live our corporate culture through our values. And if we're not living up to our values, our employees see it very quickly. And if our leadership team's not living up to our values, um, they will see it very quickly too. And that, that, the, the culture is, you know, it's, it's, it's a truism, right? It's, it starts at the top. If the way that I behave, the way that our leadership team behaves, is how your employees are ultimately going to behave. And so I'm, I'm very much a lead from, from example uh, kind of person and uh, make sure that the culture just permeates through the organization that way. You had to make some tough decisions around Ukraine and Russia and pulling out. Can you talk about that and what that process was like and how that affected your business? Well, again, um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we looked at it from a people-first point of view. That's our number one value. So the very first thing we did, we, ha we have Ukrainian employees in Ukraine. Uh, we offered to pay for them to get out of Ukraine. Um, and you know, some, some of them uh, took the option to do that, mm -hmm. and um, some of them didn't. And we've remained in contact with every employee in Ukraine who chose uh, to stay. So that was, that was the first um, thing we worried about, was people who worked for us. And then we actually have an, a, a lot of Ukrainians who work for us in our Czech uh, brewery, um, and then some of our other breweries in Central Eastern Europe. And we did the same for their families. Um, and so whoever wanted to relocate out of um, Ukraine, we helped them do that. Um, we also, on the very first day, recognized that we couldn't um, continue exporting beer into Russia, so we, we, we cut that off on the first day. And then I think it took us a day or two longer um, to um, ask our contract partner up there that was manufacturing um, Miller Genuine Draft to stop. Hmm. Um, Miller Genuine Draft in Russia actually is bigger than Miller Genuine Draft in America. Which, is it really? Which is um, quite surprising, but it is. And so we, we, are, we, we withdrew the license, asked them to stop, um, and they have. So, um, you know, we, we understand the consequences of that decision. Thankfully, we don't have any hard assets in Russia. We didn't have any breweries there. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't have that tough decision uh, uh, to make. But we, I, I think we were pretty quick, and, and our employees recognized us for, um, rec you know, living, living by our number one value. It, was, it, was, it had consequences for the folk there because they've spent decades building up the business in Russia. Um, and that is no, it's not, it, it's hard work that got Muller Junior draft to be uh, bigger than it, than it is here. So there's a recognition that um, it, it, it'll be a long time, if, if ever, if Muller Junior draft goes back to Russia. But it was unquestionably the right thing to do. When you look, the, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you know your dream was to be an accountant. You mm. went after that dream, and I would say you've surpassed uh, not only the accounting route, but being the CEO of Molson Coors has really taken your career in a totally different direction. It's a dynamic role. When you look at all of the different qualities and things that you have to do um, as a CEO, what part of the job is most uniquely you in the sense that you love it, you feel like you're uh, particularly good and equipped to handle it, and you feel most yourself when you're doing it? Well, anything associated with numbers is where I feel most comfortable. So being um, the accountant, right? <laughs> Going back to accounting? I've, I've, I've worked with our chief financial officer, Tracy, for 30 years. Um, we've, we've kind of followed each other around. And, 
And she very quickly uh, told me when I got this job, I was, I was delving into her world, and she came charging into my office one day and said, I'm the CFO, not you. Um, <laughs> stay out of my world. And so, um, yeah, but I love it. That's my yeah, well, passion. Well, that was the thing. So now I surreptitiously get numbers from all sorts of people <laughs> that uh, she's not aware of. Uh, anything associated with, uh, with numbers is, is where I feel um, most comfortable. Yes. Um, I've, I've had to work very hard to... Um, to be more um, outgoing, more uh, social and out there with, with, with distributors and customers. And when I still remember my first meeting in Walmart. They never let the accountant near Walmart, <laughs> but, the, but the CEO had to go. And, mm -hmm. and, and so that's where I've probably spent most of my time de developing that side of me, which I frankly didn't have. Mm. When you think about the future of Molson Coors and where you'd like it to go and what the big vision is, and also some future casting of, of where the beverage industry, and specifically beer, is going. What would you say? Well, it's one of the actually core tenants of our revitalization plan. Um, we recognize that we can't just be a beer company, which is why we changed our name to a beverage company. We changed the name from, you know, um, Molson Coors Beer Company to Molson Coors Beverage Company. And we wanted to be more than just a beer company. We will never walk away from beer. It's always going to be who we are. It's a very large part of our business. It's two-thirds of our profit um, comes from two brands, Miller Light and, 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 and Coors Light, and, and it'll always be that way. Two-thirds of your profit comes from Coors Light and Miller Light? Yes. Okay. They're really important brands in our portfolio. And that's where all the attention starts there. Um, but then we also recognize that, that, that particularly the younger generation of, of legal age drinkers are wanting choice. They're not necessarily wanting alcohol. So um, if we wanted to uh, capture their share of throat, we had to make sure we had products that were relevant to them. And, um, and, and that's why we went into the energy drink space, while we've gone into the, into the uh, canned uh, coffee space. Uh, we're dabbling in all sorts of, of, of things. Those are the two most successful. Um, and that's why we, we also look at spirits and, and wine. We've launched a, 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 a whiskey. Um, so I, I would see the, the company in 10 years' time um, will, will, will look very different to the way we look now from a portfolio point of view. But beer will still be at the, at the heart of the company. No, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. I want to start by bringing in some of your questions. They're starting to trickle in. And one of them actually is a really nice segue from what you just said. Um, this is a question that says, as a fan of non-alcoholic beer, I'm interested in Core's future plans in this area. Will your brands increasingly provide non-alcoholic versions? And we are seeing the uh, market for that. I, I, my podcast is called, called the same name to dine for the podcast. And one of the sponsors of the program is a, um, a non-alcoholic bourbon called Spiritless. And I, so I know a lot about that particular industry and it's growing. I'm wondering, is that something you're also interested in getting into? We actually are in it um, in, in, in the US through, uh, through Coors Edge. Um, we do have a brand called Sharps as well, but it's very small. Um, in the in the UK we and and in Central Eastern Europe we have uh, non-alc versions of, of some of our some of our beers. Mm. Um, so it is definitely a space that we will be in. Um, we've spent a lot of money uh, trying to make sure that we we replicate the taste, the taste yeah, which it's is all about which the is taste, actually right? really hard to do. It's it not, is it's not very easy. hard. Um, some of our competitors have done a, a nice job of, of, of getting really great tasting non-alc beers. I think we have got that now with, uh, with Coors Edge. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
from an innovation point of view, we've got some pretty exciting innovations coming, which um, I can't really talk about in this forum. Do you remember what, do you remember what I said to you about whether I would, I would be drinking during the interview? I said, if I, I'd be more than happy to have a drink through this interview, but it's going to look a little bit different. I'm going to ask some different questions. And what I've found is that when I do an interview while I'm drinking, the edge is gone, actually, the edge and the focus. And if you have several different storylines going on with someone, you're not able to circle back. What, what did they say? And so that's interesting that it's called Core's Edge. Is it, that right? It's Core's Edge. Okay. Yeah. Um, next question. What initiatives are Molson? <laughs> I didn't make that link, but I get it. Yes. <laughs> uh, what initiatives are Molson Core's leading to create an inclusive environment for employees? What are, what are you doing in the DEE and I space? And um, I, I imagine that it is uh, in the fore of your goals, but I'm wondering what, what are the actionable things that are happening right now to make it a more inclusive environment? So we appointed a head of, of DEI um, several years ago, um, and, and, and Stephen and the leadership team together lead our, our, our DEI uh, initiatives. We set a goal. Um, back in 2020 to increase the diversity in our organization by 25%, mm -hmm. um, both from a woman point of view and from a person of color point of view. Mm -hmm. um, in Central Eastern Europe overseas, it's, it's just um, women because you, you, there's a whole bunch of laws why we can't do it, do it otherwise. But in the US, we, we set that as a, as a goal. Mm -hmm. We monitor ourselves against it. Mm -hmm. um, we, after the... Um, after the, the um, tragedy in Milwaukee, set up listening sessions. Myself and a whole group of us went to every single brewery, every single location. Uh, we hosted uh, listening sessions to hear about what people were saying about our organization. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we actually ramped that up after George, the George Floyd um, murder, which was, was emotional for everybody, um, uh, particularly with our diverse uh, uh, population. Uh, we have. Um, I could go on and on on this one. We have uh, quarterly D&I um, uh, town halls. We actually had one this morning mm -hmm. where um, the, uh, the, the whole company is invited to, to attend. They, we normally put on speakers. This morning we had uh, the president of Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund talking about um, our partnership, which we've had for 35 years with them and, and, and how um, that, was, that was working. And then we have panels, um, and folk can ask whatever they like. Um, mm. And... Um, and, and, and we pivot based on, on, on what's on, on people's minds and, and, and where they're going. So how are we doing? Um, we, we are improving. We've right. certainly improved Well, you our, mentioned our you numbers. had a goal of 25%. Growing by 25%. Growing by, and, and have you reached that goal? We have not, no. The goal was to be there by, 20, by the end of 2023. Okay. Uh, we're on the road. Um, both those numbers are, are increasing. Um, it, as I said, it starts at the top, right? So we've, we, we have diversified our board. That's where it started. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we do have um, significantly more diversity on our board today than we had three years ago. Uh, we've diversified our leadership team and so on. Um, it's, it's flowing down the organization. Um, getting more women into our breweries is, 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 is quite tough. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's probably the area that we have struggled the most. Um, mm -hmm. Hourly employees um, in, in our breweries has been probably the toughest. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a question that came in from the audience. Can you describe how your leadership team defined its values? Well, we, we actually didn't do um, dramatic change from what was there before. So when I took over, we, had, we did have a very complicated um, uh, mission, vision, values, and, 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 and so on. And it wasn't, it wasn't elevator speechable. 
So we did narrow it uh, uh, down. Um, we we kicked it around for a, for a few days, and and it was very clear who we wanted to be and what we wanted to do. And so you know, putting people first, you know, bold and decisive. Um, the, our fifth value is, is, is celebrate together. It's probably been the hardest one over the last two years because yeah. we're not together. Right. Um, but that, it, it all came together pretty quickly, actually. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that I always start uh, the show to dine for about someone's favorite restaurant. I think a better question for you would actually be to ask you where has been your most memorable beer? Like what it was the setting? Who were you? Who was across the table? Where were you? Uh, because drinking beer is uh, a celebration. It's a reward for a hard day's work. And I'm wondering, you know, <laughs> from the CEO of Olson Coors, where his most memorable beer was. Am I allowed to name drop? Feel free. <laughs> it's actually also, also my most embarrassing moment. Really? Um, yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, in, I, I was in South Africa. I was with South African breweries. I was the finance guy, um, and. Um, at the last minute, our, our, our president wasn't able to go to a school opening in, in, in rural KwaZulu-Natal, and uh, he asked me to go. Um, and um, Nelson Mandela was there, and I was on the stage with him, um, trying to be as invisible as possible. And, uh, you know, as, as, as Madiba used to do, was when, he, when, he, when he celebrated, got up and started dancing. And, and so I was on the stage, um, and... Uh, and uh, he got up to dance, and oh, there's just no way, right? <laughs> <laughs> Television cameras were pointing at me, and um, and uh, I, but then everybody started getting up and dancing. Did you not get up? Well, I didn't at first. I was there's no way. I think, um, you have, I think you have to get up, don't but you? But then I did get up because I was the only person on the stage that wasn't up dancing. And, and Badiba looked at me and he said, "You don't have to dance." <laughs> <laughs> And then we had a beer afterwards. So yeah, that was probably my most memorable beer was, was, was with the president, but it was my most embarrassing moment. Because and of course my wife was sitting at home in Johannesburg. She saw me on TV. She said, that was awful. <laughs> and you have been working on your dancing skills ever since. No, I, just, I danced at my wedding and that's about it. That's it. That's it. Well, I want to uh, raise a glass and say cheers to you. Cheers. Thank you for this conversation. And thanks to the Executive Club for having us. Cheers to you. Thanks very much. If you liked this conversation, feel free to listen to other To Dine For conversations with Kate Sullivan. Journalist Kate Sullivan transports you to restaurants around the country to hear the diverse stories of entrepreneurs, creatives, innovators, and change agents at their favorite restaurant. You can hear To Dine For wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.